Hello, Microbial Nation, and welcome to another episode of The Micro Moment, that show that takes you down to the microscopic level to view the world just a little bit differently. I'm your host, Tess. And I'm John. And I'm Julie. And we are finally doing it. We are finally embarking on a thrilling and disturbing journey through time to explore an intriguing and unsettling topic, bioterrorism. We'll be diving into bioterrorism cases throughout history. Today, we'll be focusing on the time period before microbes were discovered, before Lewin Hook introduced the wonderful on-scene world of microbiology to humanity. So for those of you who don't mark history purely in micro moments like I do, we are talking about anything before 1676. But life up to 1676 was quite different than we, we have today. They weren't concerned with writing down history for future generations in history, as the profession wasn't even established until the 19th century. The ability to disseminate information or record history was not as robust as it is today. So to give you a little bit of an idea of where we are in scientific history, here are the top 10 scientific and technological advancements of humanity up until 1676. We have the development of geometry, which was around 600 BC when ancient Greek mathematicians came up with the idea of geometry. The second one we have is discovery of Earth's spherical shape. Before that, Guess what they thought it was? Flat. Flat. Actually, I don't know if they ever thought it was flat. Yeah, well, it just kind of ended. Right, but if you look out into the ocean, you can see a curvature of the Earth. Well, like if you didn't know, would you think that it was curving around in a globe or that it just kind of went off into the... Just fell off the Earth? I, I don't know. Like a big waterfall or something. And I guess if you didn't live near the ocean, you wouldn't see that curvature. You wouldn't have that expansive amount of view. Yeah. And unfortunately, we still have some people who think the Earth Earth is still flat, right? So dum, 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 dum. Mm. Even though they somehow keep proving themselves that the Earth is round and then not believing them. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, science. That's the great thing about it, right? Everybody can be right. (laughs) I'm not sure how that exactly works. You can convince yourself of anything, I think, nowadays. But let's go with that the Earth is round, and they discovered that in the 6th century B.C. Also the Greeks. Yes. Another thing that happened in 1440, uh, the invention of the printing press. And you can, you know, imagine what the power of the written word, being able to spread information and all of that, that was a, a really big one. And also how slow information must have traveled because they were printing everything. (laughs) Yeah, like letters, one letter at a time. And then they had to, you know, archaically get it around messengers and birds and horses and all that. So definitely not as fast as what we have today. We also have the theory of heliocentrism by Nicholas Copernicus, the invention of the telescope, which was early in the 17th century. And that was a few of the scientists, including Galileo. We have the laws of planetary motion. And of course, these are all, you know, they're all, you need to think of, you know, what we understand today versus what they understood back then about planetary motion. Um, But at least they had the idea that the planets were moving around in a certain way, which was a big step forward, that it wasn't just magic. 
A lot of astronomy was developed in early history. Not a lot in medicine. Not a lot in microbiology. I mean, they were using stars to navigate the Earth at that time, so it kind of yeah. makes sense how that was the focus, right? Mm -hmm. Like, we need to figure out how to get to A and B. They keep looking at the sky, and they just start discovering all this stuff. Yeah, and they didn't have so much light pollution, so they could actually look up into the sky and be in wonder, which I feel like we can't do that much anymore. Right. Like one star in the sky. I don't know. When I hear about things new in space, like it just, you know, the, the quantum physics and, and all of the math that goes into it, it still is seems like magic to me. Oh, yeah, 100%. There's lots of interesting things in space that are being discovered. And I think it's one of those things that humans have always been fascinated with and always will. But we don't stare up in the sky the way that the ancients used to. We just have too much light pollution to see what they saw. And why would you look up from your phone anyway? It's got everything you need. Yeah, you just find the find the astronomy news there. Mm -hmm. Well, if you want to go see those uh, sites, it's like you have to go out to like Joshua Tree or uh, these national parks where there is no light. Yeah, I mean, sometimes even farther than Joshua Tree. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Although I remember seeing quite a few amazing nights at uh, Joshua Tree. I definitely yeah, would no, like Joshua to Tree is great. I mean, even where you are, Julie, you can see a lot more stars than where we are. Yeah. John, what else happened in this time period as far as science goes? Well, in the 17th century, we had the discovery or the... I'd say development of the scientific method. This is kind Franc of important. Yeah, very important. This is Francis Bacon and René Descartes. Uh, they developed and popularized the scientific method, emphasizing empirical observation, experimentation, and logical reasoning to formulate and test scientific theories. I'm actually surprised that was the 17th century. Right. It's just like what before they just did something, or like oh, it must be that. It must be right. Must be fact. I don't know. Yeah, it just seems like that logic would have came much earlier. I wonder where we were at the development of uh, religious life at that point. Like, because before, like, all of those things were just kind of told to you and you just believed it. And at some point, some people must have been like, oh, I wonder if there are more concrete ways we can discover how things work. Yeah, I mean, and the different religions throughout time have definitely impacted science in different ways. Like, the Greeks did have their own religion, but it wasn't Catholicism. And the Catholicism in the Middle Ages was a big stopping point for science in a lot of ways. And during, I think, the medieval times, the Catholic Church, or at least churches like that, were pretty rigorous about not doing science but if you went to the middle east or the countries around there that's where science was happening at that period of time that's true yeah geographical location also played a great role in your education and what you knew and what you were allowed to do well pretty interesting yeah also in the 17th century we had the discovery of circulation this was english physician william harvey's research on the circulatory system and the heart's role in Pumping blood laid the foundation for modern understanding of the cardiovascular physiology. This one also surprised me, like 17th century to figure out that your heart is pumping blood. Well, okay, so I'll be, uh, what's what's the... Devil's advocate. Devil's advocate here. I mean, whenever you're dissecting people, they're already dead. So you can't really see the movement of blood. Yeah, and I guess it wasn't, when was Heron Burke and all of the grave robbing? That was the 18th, 19th century? 
That may have been the 1800s. Yeah, 19th century. So yeah. that's when a lot of medical and microbiological advancements occurred. Good old grave robbing. Mm-hmm. It makes me think of when we were in Vienna, we went to the, the museum there where it was the king who was obviously, or the, I guess they call him not the king, the emperor, wanted to like advance science in Vienna. And so he had all of those, the medical models. Yeah, all the anatomical wax structures. Yeah, like the way that, he, you know, that particular, you know, uh, emperor wanted to make Vienna a center of science. And so he had all of those, you know, commissioned all of those, the models to be made. And it, it's just, in, you know, the personality of the people who were in control at, at those times must have, you know, and, and to drive science forward, uh, I think is really interesting. Mm hmm. Yeah, and also in the 17th century, we had the discovery, not the discovery, the invention of calculus. This was by Sir Isaac Newton, of course, and Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz. I am probably butchering his last name. They independently dis developed calculus, a mathematical framework that revolutionized the field of mathematics, physics, and engineering. I think I heard, like, just someone's opinion, but they said that Sir Isaac Newton, like, Developed calculus because he was like, I want to figure out how the planets moved. And then he created or discovered calculus. And I thought it was go. because an apple fell on his head. Uh, I mean, I don't know if either is correct. I love how these stories just come out like an apple fell on Newton's head and then calculus. That's logic. Like George Washington had wooden teeth and chopped down a cherry tree. I was just about to say <laughs> that too. It's silly the things that we remember, which is part of what we're going to get into today. And then finally, our last to wrap up our 10 things that happened in this time frame in scientific advancements so you can put your head in the right space. We're going to end with the microscope, which was invented in the late 16th, early 17th century. The invention of the compound microscope by Zacharias Jensen and later improvements by Antoni von Leeuwenhoek allowed for the observation of microorganisms and cells, marking the beginning of microbiology. So that is the time frame that we are discussing today, but we are doing so in the lens of bioterrorism. So given the limited development of history and microbiology as distinct fields during this time, I mean, even medicine at this time was very primitive. It is extremely challenging to reconstruct these stories in absolute certainty. And we'll probably say that a couple times throughout the podcast today because we are very much adamant about giving you the facts as much as we can. But when we're dealing with things thousands of years ago, it can be very difficult to know what we have is fact or not. While our present understanding is based on the available information, it may not be entirely accurate due to the speculative nature of studying diseases, pandemics, and cultural accents from such a distant past. For instance, all we really have to go on a lot of times is symptoms, is people's diaries of accounts of what occurred. And if you have ever studied any sort of epidemiology or immunology, you know multiple microbes are causing very similar symptoms. So when we're looking at symptoms from 2,000 years ago, it could be dozens of different microbes. But even before people knew about microbes, humans used the power of these invisible agents to inflict pain and suffering on their enemies. 
So join us as we uncover the dark side of human society's relationship with microbiology. Throughout history, humans have recognized the untapped potential of microorganisms as weapons of war long before we recognize microbes' untapped potential for good. Today, we shed light on some of the earliest instances of bioterrorism, where ingenious yet malevolent minds employed the power of the microscopic life to wreak havoc on unsuspecting populations. Our journey takes us back to a time when ancient civilizations faced the wrath of mysterious diseases, often attributed to divine retribution. But were some of these outbreaks actually the result of deliberate acts? Bum, bum, bum. Where microbial agents were intentionally unleashed upon enemies? <gasps> we'll unveil a chilling agent mystery that will send shivers down your <laughs> spine. The Hittites' bioterrorism event emerges from the depths of history in a tale of deadly intrigue. An enigmatic civilization's dark secret threatens to unleash a wave of unimaginable horrors upon the ancient world. How dare you give me such a complex word? (laughs) (laughs) What was a complex word? Enigmatic. You know how hard that is to say? I was doing good sound effects, though, for you. It was, yeah. Next, we'll explore instances like the infamous plague of Athens during the Peloponnesian War in 430 BCE, where a devastating epidemic besieged the city-state of Athens. Was this outbreak of natural disaster or a calculated act of bioterrorism? And throughout our deep dive into these two instances, we will also sprinkle in some other acts of bioterrorism, that is speculated to have happened during this time. But as we delve into these sinister events, you know we'll also explore the microbes who fell victim to the evil plans of the villains of history. We'll discuss the scientists and epidemiologists who worked tirelessly to understand, combat, and prevent the devastating impact of bioterrorism. So, I hope you are ready to navigate the murky waters of the microbial warfare, exploring the historical context, scientific advancements, and the lasting impact of these incidents in history. All right, John, give us your story. All right. Let me tell you about one of the earliest examples of biological warfare seen in human history. But first, I would like to mention where I got my facts from in this episode. The first one is Discovery Magazine's article, Ancient Empires Used Bioweapons to Strike Terror More Than 3,000 Years Ago. The Collector.com's article, Hittite Royal Prayers, A Hittite King Prays to Stop the Plague. The CDC, Antimicrobe.org, John Hopkins Center for the Public Health Preparedness, and Khan Academy's Lesson on Hittites in the Ancient Anatolia. Wow, Khan Academy had something on this? Yeah. Weird. I didn't know they did stuff like that. Yeah. That they're mostly like math and No, they have a they have a history section too. Oh, okay, cool. So here's the scene. The time is the thirteen hundreds BCE. There's a trade route used by the Arzawan Empire, and its citizens are finding rams along the road of this route. Well, not to waste anything, the people bring them back to their villages to be used as livestock. Unbeknownst to them, the rams are sick with the disease, a disease which sparks an epidemic in the kingdom, an epidemic that spreads throughout the Middle East. So was this by chance? It may have actually been a deliberate attack by the Hittite Empire. But let's roll back a little bit. 
what or who was the Hittite Empire? Truth be told, I'd never heard of this empire before researching this. Me neither. This may be because the ancient empire only lasted around 500 years. Not Only 500? Only 500 years. I mean, that seems like a long time, isn't it? It's longer than America's been around. Well, not much compared to the Egyptian, Greek, or the Roman Empire around that time. Yeah, I mean, those empires did last forever. Yeah, I think they had more history, which probably overshadowed this empire. And like all those dynasties in China, they lasted sometimes. A long time. Mm. That being said, this was a significant empire in the Middle East that had been mentioned several times in the Old Testament. In fact, it is argued that it is one of the greatest empires of its time, having comparable power, land, and wealth to that of the Egyptian Empire. So, this kingdom originated around 1600 BCE in the area that is now known as Turkey. A reason they may have been so big is that once they conquered a kingdom, they were quite lenient with the people at that time. They would not completely decimate the conquered people. Naturally, they demanded tribute, but they left the culture of the area intact, and even some of the royalty would occasionally participate in festivals of local gods. I when you say tribute, was it like sacrificing? No, it like taxes. like hunger games? Oh, taxes. Taxes. They got to get that money somehow. Mm, That's true. Makes sense. And I would say that keeping their identity went a long way to making the people more willing to serve under their conquerors. Another reason for their dominating presence is that they were pioneers of the Iron Age, developing iron and steel weapons around 1400 BCE. And I, I don't know for all civilizations, but I believe even the Romans were centuries after before they started using steel and iron in their weapons. Oh, really? I'm not 100% sure, but I believe that's true. And the Hittite Empire was also one of the first kingdoms to sign a peace accord. This was with Egypt called the Treaty of Kadesh. Now, in my readings, I think what happened was this was signed because Egypt and the Hittite Empire were at war, and there was this battle that ended in a draw. But both sides claimed victory. Naturally. Naturally. And this may have been kind of to save face a little bit. On both sides? Yeah. No one likes to lose. Exactly. If anyone uh, knows that story a little bit more, you know, shoot us an email. Let me know if I got that a little bit wrong. So now that I talked about the empire a little bit, let's get back to the juicy stuff. Bioterrorism. So, as I had mentioned, rams were released in trade routes used by rival empires. This, however, was not the start of the plague. It actually originates around 1335 BCE with the evidence coming from letters sent to the Egyptian king Akhtenaten that were discovered reporting of a pestilence at what is now the border of Lebanon and Syria. One of the articles was a little confusing that I read, but I believe the Hittite Empire sent out infected donkeys. The plague spread. Infected with what? Oh, I'll get to that later. Okay. Okay. I'm leaving all of you hanging. I know. I want to know. Oh, you will. (laughs) So this plague spread, eventually causing a ban on using donkeys and caravans. In Egypt? Uh, I'm not sure what empire this was. Okay. But the... Hittangan Empire attacked the weakened area after. For some reason, they brought back animals, but these animals were also infected with the plague, which almost in a twisted sense of karma infected the empire. Oh, no. So the Hittite Empire was weakened and ended up being attacked by the 
Arswans around 1320 to 1318 BCE. And this is where we come back to the beginning of our story, where the Arswan Empire was hit with a plague. The result is it weakened their empire to the point where they had to give up their conquest. Uh-huh. Even though the Hittite empires survived this war, they would only last another 200 years or so. Eventually, the kingdom fell and fragmented into smaller empires around 1100 BCE. This was likely due to turmoil from attacks of an unknown seafaring people who also raided other Mediterranean and Egyptian cities. And what we know of of this empire mostly consists of some text that we found in the area the kingdom was as well as diplomatic and commercial mail found in Egyptian archives. Hmm. So, I talked about this plague, but I didn't say what caused it. So, what is it, and what are the symptoms? I don't know. Please tell me. It was likely the disease tularemia. Also, tularemia? Yep. Also, Never heard of that before. Neither did I. Huh. It's also known as rabbit fever and is caused by the gram-negative cocobacilli fastidious aerobic bacteria Francisella tularensis, which can also form spores that survive for weeks in the environment. To be honest, like I said, I'd never heard of this bacteria or disease, which blew my mind. It is a disease that is still around today and now commonly spread through ticks, deer flies, drink contaminated water, or inhaling aerosols or dusts. Rodents are especially susceptible, which may mean that they are the animal reservoir. It's naturally occurring in the U.S. in all the states except Hawaii, and most commonly found in the South, the Central U.S., Pacific Northwest, and Massachusetts. In Wait, fa- specifically Massachusetts? Is yeah. The, so it's not found in the North anywhere except for Massachusetts. That's what CDC said. That's weird. Yeah. Why? Because we have ticks? No, but other places have ticks in the Northeast. Yeah, so I don't know why. Like these special rodents? I mean, it, it can be found in every state, but these are like specific areas where the most cases occur. Right. Yeah. I'm just wondering because that's the only one that you said north of the Mason-Dixon line. Right. Great. Another reason to be afraid of ticks and to hate deer flies. Right. In fact, there are 150 cases in the U.S. in 2020. That's not that many. No. There's a lot of different symptoms to this disease due to where it infects, but all the forms have a fever that can reach up to 104 degrees Fahrenheit or 40 degrees Celsius. Yep, and that's not great. It isn't at all. And the symptoms appear three to five days after infection. So let's go over some of these forms. You have the ulceroglandular. You get ulcers? Yep. This is the most... This is the most common form. A skin ulcer forms at the site of entry with swelling of regional lymph nodes, such as the armpit or groin. Oh, that sounds like another pathogen we're probably going to talk about in this series. If we're talking about bioterrorism, I have an idea what you're going with. (laughs) We also have glandular. This is ulcer glandular without the ulcer. You have oculoglandular, where it enters the eye, causing irritation, inflammation, of the eye, as well as swelling of the lymph nodes in front of the ear. I hate eye things. <laughs> can't do eye things. I can't either. The oropharyngeal. This is from eating or drinking contaminated food or water, causing a sore throat, mouth ulcers, tonsillitis, and swelling of lymph nodes on the neck. We have pneumonic. This is the most serious form, causing a cough, chest pain, and difficulty breathing. Basically anything pneumonic. Once it gets into your lungs, it's bad news. Yeah, it's not very good. Yeah. 
This can occur from inhaling dust or aerosols, or it can happen when other forms are left untreated. It'll spread to your lungs. Last but not least, we have typhoidal, which is any combination of symptoms without localization. So after being infected for three to five days, the bacteria spreads to these lymph nodes, causing what's called papules, which is the swelling. That's why you have all glandular and the different types, which can also turn into ulcers. Most cases are successfully treated with antibiotics, but without treatment, it is fatal in 15% of cases. However, if the disease becomes septic or is the pulmonary form, the fatal rate rises to 30 to 60% without treatment. Oof. That being said, the disease does not seem to infect directly from person to person, interestingly. Well, that's good. Yeah. I think you have to have that intermediate like a tick or some other insect. Mm-hmm. So this is actually a rare disease today, and it's difficult to diagnose with symptoms being misdiagnosed as a more common illness. This is Yeah, even today it's hard to distinguish because symptoms are so similar between different pathogens. Right. Because your immune system just overreacts in the same way every time. There also seems to be two subspecies. Type A is the most common strain in America and highly virulent, while type B is relatively avirulent and found in Europe and Asia. Last but not least, I kind of want to talk about it as a... I don't think we're going to find it anywhere else later on, so I just want to quickly touch on as a biological weapon because mm-hmm. I've never heard about this, and I don't know if we'll be able to revisit it because I've never heard of this. Sure. Yeah, go for it. So can this be used as a biological weapon today? Oh, yeah. I can't find any current cases of bioterrorism with this as agent, but it's still considered one of the top microbes to use for bioterrorism. The U.S. studied and stockpiled the bacteria until the 1970s, and Russia continued to work with it into the 90s, making vaccine and antibiotic-resistant strains. In fact, it is considered to be one of the most infectious pathogenic bacteria known, needing as little as 10 cells to cause disease. 10? Yep. Oh, man. And the WHO or the World Health Organization considers it to be a potential biological weapon because of its infectivity, ease of dissemination, and capacity to cause illness. And even in the 70s, WHO wrote a report on this microbe saying that in this scenario, if 50 kilograms was dispersed in a population of 5 million, 250,000 would become incapacitated and 19,000 would die. And this is an important concept to point out, I think. When we think of biotism, we usually think of death, but that's not necessarily the goal of it. Say if a country were to try to invade another country or try to cripple their army, incapacitating people rather than killing them might be more beneficial as sick people tie up more resources for longer, put an additional strain on that country's resources. That's a very dark and morbid thought. It is. I have never thought of that before, (laughs) but it makes sense. And just to wrap this up, I would like to say that in terms of the Hittite plague, there's not much literature on it. In fact, this is still a theory. What I found came from a 2007 paper, but there's nothing since further proving or disproving the theory. Just several resources citing the original paper titled The Hittite Plague, an Epidemic of Tularemia and the First Recorded Biological Warfare by Ciro Igno Truvisanto. I apologize for butchering that name. Still, I found this a very cool topic to cover as I had never heard of the disease before. Yeah, definitely interesting. And that it's still potentially around. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, it's it's around. Yeah, I feel like a lot of the bioterrorism, the highest bioterrorism agents by the CDC or the WHO are the highest bioterrorism agents because of how they were used in the past. I think there is, I think it will be very rare for having a bioterrorism event in the future, but can never be too prepared for something like this. True. So that concludes my story. What are we moving on to next? So I'm going to talk about a disease that we're going to hear a lot about in this season. And I just want to preface this with, I don't believe that either one of these stories is an actual bioterrorist act, but they do give a interesting view into this particular pathogen that we will talk about. So before we get into it, I used a number of sources for this. One was a book called A History of Biological Warfare, and just kidding, that's not a book. That was a scientific paper, History of Biological Warfare and Bioterrorism by V. Barris and G. Grubb. I read some articles on the CDC and World Health Organization. I read a book called Spores, Plague, and History by Chris Holmes, as well as a chapter in another book called Greek Medicine from Hippocrates to Galen by Jacques Joanna and Mongru et al.'s paper, Mycobacterium leprae, Pathogenesis, Diagnosis, and Treatment Options. And that is not the bacteria that we are going to oh, be talking about. Oh, man, I thought that was a little reveal what it was. It was not. Also, yeah, your face was in that book like for a long time. You were reading the hell out of it. I do a lot of research when there is research to be done. <laughs> yes, it is all consuming when we have to do podcasts. <laughs> all right, so we're going to the plague of Athens. We are moving slightly forward in history to 430 BCE. This devastating epidemic, with its mysterious origins and widespread impact, left an indelible mark on one of the most powerful city-states of ancient Greece. The year is 430 BCE. The Athens, the jewel of Greece, is at the height of its power. A city renowned for its cultural achievements, democratic values, and military might, Athens is a beacon of hope and inspiration for the ancient world. The great city of Athens, once the mecca of science, medicine, and art, now is riddled with carcasses, and the vile smell of decaying bodies permeated the streets. Cattle and livestock, as well as people of Athens, were living in cramped and what we would consider today as very inhospitable conditions. And as if that wasn't enough, the militant Spartans were encroaching every day further into their city. Really? Yes. Oh, that's right. Like... Greece was kind of like a loose country. It was more like city-states, right? Mm -hmm. That's right. It wasn't like a cohesive nation. Right. And they each kind of had their own thing. The Spartans, very militant. Very militant. Yes. Athens, a little bit more into science, medicine, and art. And philosophy. And philosophy, yes. The sickness that spread through Athens always started the same. And doctors could supply no remedy, no hope for their patients. It started out innocently enough with a general malaise, typical feelings of being unwell. Then the symptoms grew terrifyingly grotesque. Victims experienced high fever, severe headaches, and relentless vomiting. Their bodies were covered in red blotches. They suffered excruciating abdominal pain. Some might start to feel a bit better. They might even think they'll go out for a walk but they'd be stone dead in a moment. 
Once contracted, it seemed certain death was just a few inevitable moments away. Hmm. I'm seeing the symptoms, but nothing's popping out straight away to me. Mm. Yeah, they're all pretty basic symptoms. You know me, I'd be out for a walk. <laughs> the Athenians, known for their resilience, were struck down in droves, including their beloved leader, Pericles, who also would succumb to the plague. The plague's origins are still shrouded in mystery. We have angered the gods, some would yell. We have offended the mighty Zeus and Apollo. Until we have amends, we will be punished by the painful and powerful pestilence. We might make more sacrifices, more demonstrations of loyalty to the gods. It's the foreigners, I'd say, cried others. The whole thing started when the Egyptians and the Ethiopians came to town. And perhaps it is our enemies that have cursed us with the plague. Sparta is a violent and wretched nation, others would cry. Hmm. Blaming other groups of people? Yeah, that never disease? happens today. It mm. Never happened further on in history. It never happened throughout <laughs> history. No. As the plague raged on, panic swept through Athens. The social fabric of the city began to unravel. Unravel. People turned on one another, accusing friends and neighbors of spreading the disease. Family members abandoned their sick loved ones out of fear. Funeral rites, once a sacred tradition, were hastily abandoned as bodies piled up, overwhelming the city's capacity to bury them properly. Regardless of its source, the plague quickly spread, leaving no one spared from this deadly grasp. Death would come to most in seven or eight days. However, there were survivors— but their lives would never be the same. Some had partial paralysis, amnesia, or occasionally blindness. But if you survived once, you were likely not to catch it again. Well, that's one thing. But you may have paralysis and blindness, so... Well, you know... You still we'll could not live a, a good quality of life. And back then, I'm not sure they had very many uh, accessibility features in their cities. I see, like... Some of these things uh, applying to today, like I see amnesia, and I'm kind of reminded of what people are calling COVID brain. Like there's this fogginess or hard to really focus for a while afterwards. Right, yeah. The Athenians named this disease after coal due to the coal black ulcers that developed over the victims. Ooh, there it is. They hence named it's not what you think. Oh, really? I don't think so. Hmm. They hence named the disease anthraca. The plague continued its relentless march through the Athens for years, periodically resurfacing and claiming more lives. It eventually abated, but not before exacting a heavy toll. Estimates suggested that up to one-third of the city's populations perished due to this dark chapter of Athenian history. Hmm. I think the disease named is the clue here. Yes, it is. Yep. What do you think it is? Uh, well, you said black ulcers, and I immediately thought the plague, the black plague. Uh -huh. But those were buboes. Uh -huh. Those weren't necessarily ulcers. So anthraca, I'm thinking anthrax. Correct. That's what they believe it was. But before we get too much into anthrax and the agent, the causal agent of that disease, I'd like to take a little moment and talk about where we are in medical and science history during this time. This is the age of Hippocrates, the father of medicine, and whose principles of balancing the four senses of humor would rule the medical doctrine for some 1300 years. 
So Hippocrates' principles were actually pretty solid advice, and much of his teachings are still taught today. His philosophy taught that disease was a natural part of life and would run its natural course, and a physician should listen, examine, and observe their patients to understand the disease and how to cure it. He was a big proponent of herbal teas, diet changes, exercising to help people with the different ailments. And he also believed that if everyone should have the same sickness, it must come from the same source that is common amongst them all. And this is where it takes a turn for the worse or for the best, depending on how you think about it. Hippocrates' new views did away with thinking diseases were curses from the gods and brought in the notion that one's environment could cause disease. And thus comes in the theory of miasma, which would derail medicine and infectious diseases for some 1,300 years. So that's where the bad comes in. But he did kind of pull it away from this divine doctrine that you have angered the gods and now you will have a plague on your family and your city for all time to come. But as I was researching it, there was also a lot of different papers that said miasma was not really something that was talked about even in Hippocrates' time. And when it was, they had to explicitly define it, which sort of indicates it was not popular at this time and was something that kind of took several hundreds of years before it became common knowledge. However, I do kind of think this is not too far from the truth, and it is a great step forward in medicine. In Greek medicine... From Hippocrates to Galen, a book authored by Jacques Johanna, he writes, quote, In the Hippocratic text, miasma has shed all notion of individual or collective responsibility, and the cause of a disease is no longer individual behavior and its relationship with religion and moral values, but rather human nature and its relationship with the surrounding environment, end quote. It would be a long while before the theory of miasma would be really a common form of explaining infectious diseases. And it would be a long time after that until humanity would discover microbes as the causal of many diseases. But hey, at least it's a start to bring about the idea that you don't need to sacrifice animals to please the gods so you could keep on living. But boy, would it make it hard for Jon Snow in a thousand years from now. (laughs) Sure would. And you can see the seeds of like, modern medicine or just maybe not even modern medicine kind of epidemiology or the the science to figure out what causes the disease Mm -hmm. well we cannot be sure the plague of athens was caused by anthrax and there are a great many who think it was not the symptoms and time frame do line up pretty well and the fact that they were piling up bodies for sometimes days would allow bacillus anthracis to be released into the air to find its next unsuspecting host. Regardless of who or what started this epidemic, whether purposefully or not, this would be one of the first documented times of a microbe changing the course of history because this is when Athens started to fall. There is a theory out there, I 100% do not believe it, but there is a theory out there that Alexander the Great, who did die in a mysterious way, was, in fact, another victim of bioterrorism by anthrax. 
Now, no one really knows how Alexander the Great died. He died at about the age of 33, kind of at the height of his game when he was kind of taking over everything. A lot of people believe it was malaria, which makes a lot of sense. Um, But there is a theory out there that it was anthrax by perhaps an ex-lover of his who knew a thing or two about the transmission of anthrax, which you can get from hides of infected animals and they used to use these hides as rugs so you give a rug from an infected animal from someone whose farm um, maybe the farmer died and the rug was there you bought the rug you bring it into his room a couple days later he dies of anthrax i'm not sure i 100 believe that story but it is sort of another moment in history that anthrax makes its glaring little way into changing the course of history again i do think it's probably a different micro but The theory exists, so I shall share. So let's talk about anthrax a little bit more. So anthrax, the microbiology, morphology, and pathogenesis. Anthrax is caused by the microbacillus anthracis. And I hope you don't get sick of this micro because I will be talking about it for quite a long time now. But don't get it. You don't get sick from this talking about this micro. Well, hopefully no one gets sick of anthrax because that's brutal. It, yeah, no bueno. No. Both the CDC and the World Health Organizations believe anthrax is a top threat in bioterrorism attacks. As we will see throughout the course of this season, anthrax has been used throughout history as a bioterrorism agent, and there are several reasons why the villains of our world would turn to such a microbe to carry out their dirty work. So I ask you, why would terrorists pick Bacillus anthracis as their weapon of mass destruction? There are five main reasons. Hmm. Um, All right. I'm going to say one. I think they're spore forming. Correct. So they can last a while and that allows them to spread more easily. Yes. Not only that... The spore formation is really easy to manipulate. So while in nature these spores can form over a long period of time, it is relatively easy to quicken the pace with just a little bit of pure oxygen and hydrochloric acid. And then you have spores. And the spores are really uh, beneficial. I don't know if that's quite the right word, but they are useful, I guess, in a bioterrorism's mind because they are a hardy microbe with a long shelf life, which is two points, actually, as the spore formings. Like other diseases like Clostridium tetani and Clostridium botulinum, Bacillus anthracis can survive for decades in soil and spore formation. A spore is a protective protein armor. So protective is this armor that the spore can withstand fire, freezing, disinfectants, and even explosions. That's a hardy microbe. That is very hardy. Yeah, I don't really know who decided that, who got a grant to explode anthrax, but... Oh, I'm sure it was the Department of Defense. That's probably true. When we were testing bioterrorism agents. Yeah, all right, that makes sense. All right, so that was two points. What else you got? I'm going to say, I don't know if this is a point towards it, but it has many hosts, right? It does have many hosts, yes. So you can, you know, if you release it, then not only is it infecting just people, but then you got your livestock, which could also spread to more people. Mm-hmm. And then or also- just decimating someone's livestock is going to incapacitate a civilization. Right. People rely on that for food. Julie, do you have any, any ideas? Well, I think that because it can be uh, 
kind of disseminated in multiple ways, right? So you can put it in food and people can ingest it or they could breathe it in or even if you get it on your skin. So lots of different ways it can be not so great for people. Yes, it's deadly and a vicious pathogen when inhaled. So there are four types of anthrax symptoms depending on how it is contracted, cutaneous, inhalation, gastrointestinal, and injection. So cutaneous is when anthrax spores make contact with broken skin. This can cause small itchy blisters or bumps that may swell. It can also cause an ulcer or sore that is black and typically pops up on the face, neck, arms, or hand. And because these symptoms resemble that of the plague, some historians believe maybe it was not just Yersinia pestis that caused the black plague, but might have also been cutaneous anthrax mixed in with the plague. Ooh, a double whammy. Double whammy. Inhalation anthrax is perhaps the most deathly and most probable version of bioterrorism. Once inhaled, bacillus anthracis causes fever, chills, shortness of breath, coughing, dizziness, headache, nausea, vomiting, stomach pains, sweats, extreme tiredness, and body aches. None of that would be good for your soldiers. No. no I, I just like sweats. It's like, oh man, he's got the sweats. Got the sweats. <laughs> Gastrointestinal anthrax is similar to inhalation anthrax with fevers, chills, headaches, but with the added symptoms of diarrhea, painful swallowing, and swelling in the neck and abdomen. Doesn't also like cause some of your intestines to like die? Yeah. Or like necrotizing? You have all your gut microbes spewing out into your abdomen. Mm-hmm. And injection anthrax is similar to cutaneous anthrax in that you'll have small blisters and a sore, but because it was injected into your body, it will spread faster than cutaneous anthrax. So, don't do drugs. <laughs> this so, is your PSA. That's my PSA. Don't do drugs. Uh, okay, so we're at three of the five reasons why anthrax is a great bioterrorist agent. <sighs> I'm going to take a gander and say it has, like, small gestation period. Sort of. So this one goes into one of the one of the things that you said for, what was yours, teleremia? Yeah. So it was one of the reasons that teleremia was a good bioterrorist agent. It didn't need a lot. Yes. A little goes a long way. Hmm. Infection can occur in as little as 5,000 spores. So yours was 20, right? 20 cells? Ten. 10 cells, um, so a little bit more, but this may seem like a lot, but a pinch of anthrax spores is about a million spores, enough to infect 200 people. And the last point is that anthrax is not really that hard to find. Like, where would you find it? I don't know. The soil. In soil. That's how easy it is to find. It Fundamentally, it is not really a disease of humans, but more associated with animals, more specifically sheep and cows. It is native in many soils, and this is typically where sheep and cows contract the disease. And typically in the past when people contracted it, it was because they worked closely with cows or sheep that were infected, and then it traveled to them or transmitted to them. Because of this, it was sometimes called rag picker's disease or wool sorter's disease. So would an infected cow or sheep like poop on the ground and then it would the anthrax would be in the ground? That's how it would get to the soil? Yes, it will cycle like that. 
So there you have it. Five reasons why Bacillus ratius is often the go-to agent for biological warfare. It's easy to find. It's hardy. It's simple to manipulate. It doesn't take much to have a big impact. And it's extremely deadly. It's no wonder humans go to active bioterrorism for the last 2,000 years has been Bacillus anthracis. And that is why we'll be talking about it quite a lot as we're moving through history. Right. We won't say now, but we'll tease there is an important case later on. Mm-hmm. Which I think we have done a little bit on this podcast before. Have we? I'm pretty sure we did. But yeah, I don't know. We've done a lot of podcasts. Who knows? We'll have to check the catalog. Right. And one more quick story before we go. We're going to fast forward a little bit to the 4th century BCE. As chronicled by the legendary historian Herodotus, the Scathian archers, known for their ruthless tactics, used to dip their arrows into decomposing cadavers, infecting them with a disease, and then they would shoot their arrows to strike their foes, carrying deadly pathogens and terrorizing their enemies. I wonder who the first person to think of that was. Well, I think even in Greek mythology, Hercules used poison arrows to fight his foes. I think that was even Snake Lady. Mm. Medusa? That's the one. Yeah. And while poisons aren't always microbes, they could be a number of other poisons. I think when you're dipping something into diseased cadavers, you are definitely spreading pathogens. Oh, yeah. Your poison is microbial. So I wanted to throw that in as a little extra moment of bioterrorism. Well, that's it for now, Microbial Nation. Thank you for joining us for this captivating journey through the annals of history, exploring acts of bioterrorism that reverberated across the ages. If you've enjoyed this episode, we'd greatly appreciate your support. Please take a moment and rate and subscribe to our podcast to ensure you don't miss out on future episodes. Tune in next time as we continue our exploration of early history's dark tales of bioterrorism, unearthing untold stories that will leave you spellbound. Until then, stay curious, stay safe, and may your thirst of knowledge never wane, but also never be quite as severe as what your city of pestis does to fleas. And if you're confused, tune in next time. Love ya. Bye. 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 Bye.